Hello, everyone. My name is Shirley Lay, she, her pronouns, and I'm a principal at BIPOC Executive Search. Welcome to my 10-part video series titled In Community with Shirley Lay, where I hold space for conversations about the reimagination of workplaces as sites for pleasure, joy, and liberation. Through deconstructing conversations and liberative storytelling, I'll be inviting us to express our counter-narratives as human beings solidly rooted in centuries of cultural wisdom. In last week's video, I talked about the works of clinical psychologists Dr. Hector Adames and Nayeli Chavez-Duenas, who discussed the importance of using the gut as a source of wisdom, intelligence, and knowledge. I invite you to draw upon that learning and apply it in today's conversation. Today's insights will also tie nicely into the themes discussed in my previous videos on constructing a Thrivance toolkit and affirming your humanity. Today, we're going to talk about experiences that are probably familiar or relatable to BIPOC individuals. These includes being told to go back home, that we speak English with an accent, that our cultural food smells or look gross, that we care too much about what our parents think of us, having our first or last names mispronounced, being excluded from activities that are financially costly, being invisibilized like not being called on to weigh in on a subject matter, not having people who look like us in positions of authority and power, and not being taught my own cultural history in the mainstream academic curriculum. Having these experiences happen once or twice is likely not to cause us to flinch or react with much alarm. However, if we receive these messages on the daily for years and years on end, they not only stir up feelings of resentment, anger, and disgust, but also weather and fatigue us. If left unchecked, these become ticking time bombs in our bodies, feeding off of and becoming further charged by the darkness and silence. If we listen to our gut closely, it'll likely tell us that these statements and questions are wreaking havoc on our systems. These questions challenge our humanity, invisibilizes our experiences, and constantly put us in a state of defense of having to legitimize the parts of us that make up who we are. While subtle, these attacks send a message that we don't measure up to a certain standard, which is often the Western Eurocentric ways of being. To take a critical social justice lens to our experiences, what we've been experiencing all these years are what Dar Dr. Daryl Wing Sue, professor of counseling psychology at Columbia University calls microaggressions, microinsults, and microinvalidations. While these types of comments are seemingly small and benign, they carry a heavy impact because of the frequency of its occurrence and its contribution to the trauma that we've inherited from our ancestors who've had to deny their voices, subjugate their needs, and live in inferior status to survive racially oppressive situations. Because so many of us have been taught to survive in an unjust, oppressive world by just letting things slide, ignoring or walking away, we're not likely to boldly stand up to oppressors and hold them accountable for our hurt and pain. 
Many of us will chastise and scold ourselves for taking such a seemingly sheepish and undignifying way out. But after learning about the work of Dr. Leticia Niedo, a practitioner of liberation counseling psychology, I've come to appreciate the survival strategy of responding in silence to self-preserve and survive undignifying experiences. For this reason, I now honor my silence, giving it space to tell me why I don't need to call out an oppressor in the moment of a microaggression, and likely that reason is because it may not be psychologically safe to do so. Drawing on Dr. Nieto's work, here are some great questions to ask yourself to determine whether you want to hold someone accountable for microaggression or to address the pain and anguish in safer spaces. During the decision-making process, ask yourself, is this the place to raise the issue? Will this person be receptive to what I have to say? And is this person ready to receive what I have to say? That is, will they change their mind? Do they have the skills to understand more about my marginalized experience? Or is this person just going to dismiss, defend, minimize, and critique? Is this the best use of my energy? Take some time to reflect on the questions that are most useful for you. My recommendation is to have some personal responses to these questions ahead of time so that in the moment of a microaggression, you can make a quick assessment as to what you'd like to do to respond. If your assessment is, this person looks physically intimidating and is so blinded by their anger that they're unable to hear me, then you have every right to withhold a response. Walk away and turn to your allies and co-conspirators for support instead. In moments like these, it may be more adaptive to choose the route of self-preservation by speaking about the injustice to someone who can understand the depths of your pain and hurt. If that person is around at the time of the microaggression, you might choose to ask them to speak on your behalf, to denounce the microaggressor's attacks, and to show up in solidarity to your defense. That's all for today, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Let's all continue to work towards building a work community that allows us to be safe, seen, and heard. See you next time.